Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's well. We have now transitioned into October, which means clearer skies, fresher air, temperatures dropping, leaves changing, but the sports world continues to heat up, and I'll be able to dissect it all, to have you digest it all, here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me for now 158 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, October the 5th, in the year of our Lord, 2020, the J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast? This is as follows. The wild card round is over and the divisional series begins today in the American League out in San Diego and Los Angeles. I'll recap the past week with the wild card round and now usher in the division series where we have rivalries abound and storylines to shake a stick at. I'll be able to preview it all, how all these series will probably be affected in some way due to some regular season histrionics between these clubs. So we'll have that as well. As an idea that I have to shorten baseball games, as you've seen over the past week, whether it was game two against the Yankees in Cleveland or game three between the White Sox and Oakland, these games are interminable. I have the suggestion. And not only that, here's a hint, people. You've already seen it happen this year. So keep that in mind as we'll talk about that later on. I'll also get into the NBA. The finals has a little bit of juice now, if you want to call it that, after the Heat's win last night. I'll talk about that, as well as Doc Rivers, who got fired last Monday and then was hired before the end of the week by the Philadelphia 76ers. What impact he'll have on the city of brotherly love, especially the relationship between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. I'll also talk about what's happening in college football, what's left of the women's side in the French Open tennis tournament. So much to discuss, as well as my hero in zero of the week. But my theme here to kick us off It's been some time since we've had to dig up the perpetual story of 2020, and we all know that is of COVID-19. And we've seen what has happened in the world. Not going to get into the recent events as of Thursday night or really Friday morning with the president. But when we've discussed here over the last six months about how this virus has just taken over and control of everything, and in particular our sector of the world when it comes to sports... Dealing with seasons having to be interrupted and restarted as we saw in the NHL and NBA. Major League Baseball not starting until July. And then having them go through what they experienced early on between the Marlins taking a week off. And then the Cardinals right after that having two and a half weeks off. And the impact that it had in baseball even though they were able to squeeze in their seasons but still... The uncertainty of not knowing if other teams were going to contract the virus or players, etc. And having that cloud cast above Major League Baseball just to get to this point. Now that they're in bubbles for the postseason for the rest of the way and hoping that they can complete their season. 
You also had the impact of college football, where both the Big Ten and Pac-12 had bowed out from the beginning. But now, slowly but surely, they'll start to usher in their college football seasons later on this month and next month. And even though college football right now is starting to get its sea legs with some of the conference games as we've seen in the SEC as well as the Big 12. But that also has been slow to get underway or at least capture the imagination of the casual fan when it comes to college football. I know the diehards, especially in the South, they're already into it. They're raring to go. But for someone like myself and in other parts of the country where college football isn't king, I'm sure it has not been welcomed with open arms considering everything that's happened with COVID. And now that what we've seen here with the last sports standing, the Mighty Shield, a.k.a. the NFL, they've been impacted with no preseason games, no positive tests throughout July and August. We understand the NFL draft back then, but nobody cares about that. And here we are, three weeks into a season where things seem to be smooth sailing, and then all of a sudden, in the horizon, there was a big giant cloud, and then some thunder, and then lightning. And then the next thing you know, the NFL ship that was on its way to hopefully getting into the first quarter of the season unscathed, that storm came and it hit, especially in Tennessee. It was so far so good for Roger Goodell and company, but because of it, now they've been thrusted into the spotlight when it comes to dealing with coronavirus, not only just with the Tennessee Titans, but of course with the New England Patriots and in particular Cam Newton, which is surprising when you think about it because we see now that it's been reported, I believe, 10 players or in upwards of 10 players and eight staff members, 18 with personnel in total, and how the Patriots had to reschedule their game yesterday, which would have been the 425 headline game for the AFC between New England and Kansas City, had to be postponed until tonight at 7 p.m., which I believe CBS is showing, but I don't know if it's going to be broadcast for the land, if it's on just regionally in New England and Kansas City, that I'm not too sure of. But one of the marquee games of yesterday, and then think about this, the marquee 1 o'clock game between Pittsburgh and Tennessee, which I'll get to later on, that having to be rescheduled, you had probably one of the worst slates of NFL games on a Sunday, and as far as I can even remember. Now, some of them were intriguing. I'm going to get to some of those matchups and some of the strategy of certain games that had taken place yesterday. But you did not have any sexy matchups by any stretch coming into this final game of the first quarter of the NFL season. And now with COVID being a part of this, you wonder, what does this mean moving forward? Not only for the Titans, because their game this weekend could also potentially be affected with the Buffalo Bills. Now, think about this. You had a Steeler-Titan game where you had two 3-0 and teams going up against each other. That being pushed to October 25th. And then, with the Titans not playing yesterday, you still have a chance of two teams that have been undefeated to this point play this Sunday in Tennessee where the Bills, winning in Las Vegas yesterday, starting off their season at 4-0. You may have a matchup of Titans there, if you want to call it that, in the AFC. But now we have to wait with bated breath to see whether or not some of these players on the mend will not only be 100% healthy and have negative tests from here moving forward, but more so getting back into the facility, getting back into practice, getting back into, if you want to call it, game shape. I understand it's been a week, but sometimes all it takes is that week off 
where you're not practicing at all, and even though technically it was a bye week for them, but without being on the field, without being in the locker room around the guys, I'm sure it's going to be a different edge for them this coming week if they do happen to prepare for a game this coming Sunday against the Bills. And we don't know what's going to take place here. It's easy to come out and say, oh, well, if another team gets affected by this or a bunch of players spread throughout the league, we got to shut down the season. That's not going to happen, people. We saw this with Major League Baseball, with the Cardinals in particular. I understand the Marlins, they had a ton of players. They had almost up to 20 players have COVID and they came back within nine days. And the Cardinals were gone for about 17 days. And they were able to make up all but two games, which they would have played last Monday, if necessary, a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. Thankfully, they didn't have to do that. They were able to make the postseason and played 58 games where they had to squeeze in 11 doubleheaders over the last, I believe, five weeks of the season. So the NFL, obviously with the luxury of having games, whether on Sunday, Monday, or depending on where it falls in the schedule on a Thursday, they could hopefully try to maneuver with bye weeks and maybe figure out a way to play this season without having it to be interrupted. And it's easy to say right now that if we have another outbreak with another team, that, oh, we're going to have to shut it down. Unless multiple teams come down with the virus, not even just players, because you could have two or three players on certain teams. All you got to do is look at New England. Unfortunately, it happened to their quarterback of all players. But because it was only the one player... And because no one else was affected by this, thankfully, they're going to be able to play a game tonight. Although it's not going to have the same feel, it's not going to have the same appeal as what we thought it would be going into the game yesterday if it was to be played. But now we could trudge and move forward knowing that as long as anywhere from five to over, I would think, a dozen players are affected on a particular team, that we don't have to worry about the season either being interrupted or having to be suspended or postponed, whatever it may be. To me, it's just a matter of time before another team or a bunch of players come up with it, but we can't predict that. And I know I said months ago that COVID is going to have a stranglehold on this thing and it's going to dictate on whether these sports are going to be played. Well, hopefully the players, and I'm sure they've been abiding by the rules, we're not going to know until we find out at some point how all these players on Tennessee got affected. Thankfully, the team that they played the week before, Minnesota, there weren't any negative tests there. So the Vikings didn't have to worry about any of their players considering they had the game in Minnesota and it was indoors for what that's worth. They didn't have to worry about not having to play this week or wonder whether or not if they're going to play at some point over the course of these next few weeks as they won their first game in Houston yesterday. But now we're going to have to wait and see. We're going to have to hold our collective breaths and I'm sure Roger Goodell has a couple of beads of sweat at his brow because you do not want to go into a season whether it's one game, four games and especially deep as you get into the fall, as the weather gets colder, as more people are going to be indoors. You're not going to be outdoors eating in Minnesota if it's 15 degrees outside unlike New York where they passed a Law where they're going to permanently have outdoor dining even into the winter and those cold, brutal months that we so are not looking forward to, especially yours truly. So we'll continue to monitor this and keep ourselves abreast of what the NFL is going to do here when it comes to 
teams, players, personnel, you got to include the coaching staffs, etc., on whether or not the NFL is going to face anything close to what Major League Baseball, the NBA, or the NHL has experienced. And one last thing before I get to the games yesterday. I understand nobody's going to want to hear this. People are going to say, Jay Reels, stop it. Get off your high horse. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to shed a tear or lose a wink of sleep. But the Steelers get screwed here. And the reason why is because, forget about the 13 straight weeks of football, because now that they had to have this forced by upon their hands, and I get that the Eric Ebrons of the world were upset because he had his son's birthday party, and it's just tough luck. What are you going to do? But here's the part that I don't like when it comes to the schedule, and they had to do it this way, we understand. But because Tennessee had a bye the week before the Steelers scheduled bye on October 25th, and it just so happens on that day where the Steelers would have had a bye, the Ravens would have had their bye as well. So on October 18th, the day where Tennessee would have had their bye, that's where Pittsburgh will go to play Tennessee, followed by the original bye week for Pittsburgh and Baltimore. They're going to play that game. And then the following week, the Steelers are going to play in Dallas to make it three straight road games in that stretch. Now we understand Tennessee right now 3-0. The Ravens are the Steelers' arch rival. And then Dallas, who probably couldn't stop me if I was at quarterback, but still not going to be an easy game to go down there to play the forever rivaled, especially when it comes to Super Bowls, Dallas Cowboys. So that I don't like. But anyway, just like the rest of the team, I got to suck it up as a fan and hopefully cheer them on to victories in all three of those games. So now let's get to those games. And I'm going to start off here with the winners of yesterday, week four. The first winner, right off the bat, are the Philadelphia Eagles. They saved their season, as crazy as that may sound, because that division, by far, is the worst in the NFL. The Eagles are now 1-2-1, and one after the Cowboys tried another ferocious comeback, but fell up short. The Giants, as inept as they are, and then the Redskins, pretty much right behind them. The Eagles, which had a huge game out in San Francisco there Sunday night. And we know San Francisco is as banged up as anybody in the NFL right now. But they were able, with backups, guys like Travis Fulgham, who was on the practice squad, who had to be signed off the practice squad to play last night because of all the injuries they have at the wideout position, were able to win a 25-20 game and to get some sort of confidence rolling forward For an Eagle team that a lot of people thought, including myself, would have a down year. And with them starting off 0-2-1 and looking at an 0-3-1 deficit, and as crazy as this sounds, even if they would have lost yesterday, they still would have been in a hunt for a division, which is mind-blowing to say the least. But give it up to them to gut out a win, coast-to-coast, in San Francisco. So they get my number one winner of the week. My second winner... And they've kind of been under the radar after their opening week loss against Jacksonville. But give it up for the Indianapolis Colts. As they've now won three in a row. They go into Chicago. Beat the Bears. And we get that they're a soft 3-0 at the time. But for Indy to now get themselves in a mix in the AFC South. Still behind the Tennessee Titans. There for first place. But a little bit of separation there. We know Jacksonville's bad. And Houston has just been awful. So Indianapolis puts themselves not only in that division, but even in the mix for the AFC early on for the postseason. We're only in week four, people, so I'm not going to get too carried away. But great job by them. 
and what they did in getting themselves to a 3-1 record. And then my third, and why not, let's give it up to Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals for getting their first win. And they've been competitive in their four games. Joe Burrow, 300 yards passing in the last three games, which is a rookie record. And he's not a guy that's been stretching the field by any stretch. Zach Taylor, a lot of dink and dunk, easy, safe plays for the rookie. But give it up for them as they get their first victory beating Jacksonville yesterday. So those are my winners to start us off. And then the losers, I got to say Arizona, only because they started off 2-0. Some people thought that possibly they could compete here in the division. And even though it's still early, there's still plenty of games to go, especially in the division. But for them to have these losses against Detroit and then to go to Carolina and give it up for Carolina, they would have been one of my winners of the week considering they started 0-2 and now they're 2-0 and they're playing well for Matt Rule. But to me, this is a step down for Arizona. They weren't competitive in this game. They got off to a slow start. And when you look at Kyler Murray's numbers, 24 for 31 for 133 yards, I get that that probably wasn't part of the game plan yesterday, but if you're Cliff Kingsbury and company, you got to go back to the drawing board and try to stretch the field there a little bit. Because those type of numbers, despite the 24 for 31, the completion percentage is fine, but where are the yards? And more importantly, where are the points? So to me, that was just a bad sign for Arizona. And listen, you could lose a road game, we get that, but that's a game that could have been at least competitive. And for them to not be even competitive in the game, that's an early warning sign to see if Arizona hasn't grown up to take that next step, not only just in the NFC West, but even throughout the league as well. I know I've had this team on my loser list and I'm not trying to pick on them by any stretch so my early apologies to JD to me the loser is the Dallas defense I'm not going to say anything about their offense I get that Dak Prescott threw for over 500 yards but this is now the second time where he's had to pad his stats really third time when you think about it because even in the Seattle game they were down and they had to come all the way back to even take a lead before losing against uh, Seattle last week we know about the week before against Atlanta and that ferocious comeback And then here, yesterday, when they were down 41-14. And then when I noticed and looked at the score, when they came all the way back at 41-38, and I said to myself, there's no way they're going to win this game again. And for them to not even just show up, and we get that their secondary is depleted. They do not have much of a pass rush right now. Demarcus Lawrence, who is the mainstay on that team, is a guy that I know he talked about his team being soft or his defense playing soft yesterday. But if you're a Cowboy fan, you got to be sick to your stomach knowing that you could score points with the best of them, but you're just giving up points at an alarming rate. I mean, how many more games are you going to give up in the 30s? Whether it's 39 to Atlanta, 48 yesterday because they tacked on another touchdown after that, which I'll get to in a minute. And if you're Mike McCarthy and company, you got to forget about going back to the drawing board. You got to go to ground zero and start over. And we understand you need to have talent on defense, but whatever they're drawing up down there, it has just been a complete disaster. So unfortunately, they get my other loser of the week. And as we go through the week four docket, the thing that puzzled me about the end of that Cowboy game, at 41-38, I don't know what Mike McCarthy was thinking when he tried to go for an onside kick again, as he did two weeks ago against Atlanta. There was 3.36 on the clock. They had a timeout and a two-minute warning. And I understand your defense has been Swiss cheese. I get it. And I'm sure he had zero faith, zero confidence in his team 
defensively to try to mount a three and out at some point there to get the ball back and maybe even march down the field to kick a game-time field goal. But with that much time left on the clock, and for them to, I don't know, was he drunk with power thinking that he was going to get another onside kick when we know the percentages of retrieving onside kicks are at what, 6%? And they tried to execute that, didn't work. And then what happened? The next play, because of the field position that the Browns were at, right around midfield, what happens? There was a pitch to Odell Beckham Jr. He turns the corner, up the sideline, in the end zone, and the game's over. That's why you have to kick the ball off because all the advantage is for the offense, not only because they're at midfield, but all they need to do is just get a couple of first downs, maybe kick a field goal, or in this case, get a touchdown, and then the game's over. So if you're Mike McCarthy or the defensive coaching staff, you tell your team, hey, we've done nothing all afternoon. We couldn't stop me if I was on offense for the Cleveland Browns, but let's get a stop here. Earn your paycheck on this defensive series. And maybe, just maybe, as tired, as exhausted, as terrible as they've been, who knows? Maybe they'll muster up enough strength and enough energy to make a stop there on the Browns, get the ball back, try to tie the game, or even maybe win it. Because, right, you'd have no timeouts. The two-minute warning would be gone. You probably would have got the ball back with maybe a little bit over a minute to go. And to me, you'd have a better chance of tying the game that way than to try to kick an onside kick and then hope to get a three and out. But for the reasons that I've explained... For the Browns to get the ball in midfield, they're going downhill at that point. And as we saw, they get a touchdown, and that's the game. And the Cowboys are now 1-3. and three. Some of these other games of note. I'm not going to go back to Thursday night with Denver and the Jets. Is, does anybody really care? I know Adam Gase. That whole disaster there at the end, calling timeouts when the game was over. Jeez. They're just clueless. Giants, I know yesterday the big story was Jalen Ramsey, the fight with Golden Tate. And I didn't realize that Jalen Ramsey is involved with Golden Tate's sister where they have two kids. I'm sure there's uh, not many Thanksgiving dinners. And of course, that's during the middle of the season. But my point is the holiday dinners between the Ramseys and the Tates, I'm sure, are very few and far between. So whatever personal issues that they have with one another, it was taken out not only on the field with the one tackle that Jalen Ramsey had on Golden Tate, but also at the end of the game. I'm sure there may be fines. I don't think it's going to be suspensions. It was after the game. I'm sure both players will be heavily fined. But that was the, the storyline more so than the game itself, even though the game was a snooze, 17-9 that the Rams win. And we know the Giants are pathetic. Buffalo beats Las Vegas yesterday, where Derek Carr says that he's just sick and tired of losing. Who knows? Maybe that'll light a fire under the team for next week. And I believe they go to Kansas City, so good luck with that. But the Bills showing that they can play, whether it's giving up leads to the Rams and coming back and winning, although they had a pass interference call that helped them out there. Beating the dregs of the league, whether it's the Jets or even the Dolphins. I know the Dolphins are a little bit competitive. It's certainly more competitive than the Jets. And then the Raiders, who had a 2-0 start, and now they're at 500 with 2-2. But the Bills are showing that they're even more offense than they are defense. With the way Josh Allen has performed here. Also of note, speaking of offensive performances, look at Tampa Bay with Tom Brady. Five touchdowns, over 300 yards. Looking like he has not missed the beat. Tampa's now 3-1 and one as they beat the Chargers. And Justin Herbert had another good game yesterday for him. Herbert, I believe, he didn't get 300 yards as he did the first two games. And he actually would have matched Joe Burrow in that regard. 
But he was 20 for 25, three TDs, 290 yards. So a very good game for him. But he did throw a bad pick at 38-31 with about, I don't know how much time was on the clock, maybe within three minutes. But as he's trying to march down the field for a game-tying touchdown, he threw the ultimate rookie mistake, one of those floating overthrown interceptions over the receiver and right into the center fielder, the safety's hands, and was able to run it back a little bit to ice the game. So Herbert showing some signs. And again, Tyrod Taylor, he's long for that job now. And I talked about this last week. If you didn't listen to the podcast, he's a guy that he needs to be in the lineup game in and game out. Let him get the reps. Let him get the experience. He is your future, not Tyrod Taylor. And even if Tyrod Taylor is 100%, and I don't even know if he was for this game yesterday, but you got to go with the rookie at this point. Minnesota winning their first game of the year which was good for them. They got off the schneid. Houston 0-4, and they start off with a brutal schedule, but now let's see if they could turn their season around. Bill O'Brien, the coach who I've never been in love with, you wonder if he's going to have to start putting his house for sale because that team has some talent, but they have not been able to put it together. And yesterday was just indicative of that as they lose at home, 0-4 to start their season. And right now, three and a half games behind the Titans as well as three games behind the Colts. And they still have plenty of division games left to go, but still not a good sign if you're a Houston Texan fan. Baltimore got back on the winning ledger in Washington yesterday, 31-17. I know I didn't discuss about the Chiefs and Ravens last Monday night, of course, with the pod being released early that afternoon. Now, it's a week old. I'm not going to get into it, but it is alarming to see how Lamar Jackson cannot, for whatever reason, perform under the bright lights, especially against the Kansas City Chiefs. And we know the resume from last year and everything he's done, but he came up very small in that game. That's all there is to it. And here's one other stat that you need to remember moving forward. Lamar Jackson in his career, when he trails at halftime, 0-6. I'll just leave it at that. We have the Seahawks who won in Miami yesterday. Miami looked like they had a chance to at least take the lead there. Down 17-12, they ended up sending for a field goal, but then Seattle then at that point took over where Russell Wilson had two more touchdowns. He's actually matched Peyton Manning's 16 touchdowns in the first four games of the season, which I believe was that 55-touchdown season his first year in Denver. And right now he's on pace to throw 64 touchdowns this season. So Russell Wilson and the Seahawks are flying high, 4-0 with a win down in Miami. And Fitzpatrick was awful. He threw three interceptions yesterday. Has not shown any signs of that Fitzmagic. You wonder... When is Tua Tagovailoa's number going to be called here? Because you would think, the Dolphins aren't going to go anywhere. Brian Flores isn't going to go anywhere. You know, this isn't a situation as I talked about with Anthony Lynn, who's pretty much fighting for his job. And not to say that Lynn is on a hot seat, but if they continue to lose with him being there for four years, that's going to be the case. But here with Tagovailoa, at some point they're going to have to go to him in the next couple of games. Because Fitzpatrick, I could see if he was producing and the games were close, But with the Dolphins, other than the Thursday night game a week and a half ago against Jacksonville, he's done nothing in this first four games of the season. So it makes you wonder when they're going to go to their number one draft pick, fifth overall from Alabama to get the the fans' blood pumping as far as their team is concerned. And then you had New Orleans winning in Detroit where the Lions looked like they were a little feisty early on, looked like they were going to be competitive throughout the game, but then they... Saints turned on the offensive jets. They were able to get themselves going. 
to the tune of five straight touchdown drives there in the second quarter and beyond, or late first quarter into the second quarter. And they cruised to a 35-29 victory, not as close as the score indicated. And that's pretty much what you have there for week four. Very underwhelming. To take a look ahead for week five, you have a very good Thursday night matchup between Tampa Bay and Chicago. Now, Chicago's a bit of a paper tiger, as we know, but at least it's a lot more appealing than what we've seen the last two Thursdays with Miami and Jacksonville and Denver and the Jets. This is almost like a championship game in comparison to those two games. We'll see how the Bucks perform here on the road, primetime, there at Soldier Field. The other games of note, the one game that pops up right away is Buffalo at Tennessee. And I just read a couple of minutes ago that there have been no new positive tests for the Titans. So it looks like they may go ahead as of right now and play this game come Sunday. As I mentioned before, who knows with the team and not being able to practice at all last week, what kind of effect that's going to have them coming Sunday. And you would think that they're going to ramp up their practices this week just to kind of get themselves back to game speed. But that's one game to look at. The other game that raises an eyebrow when it comes to a quote-unquote marquee matchup is Indianapolis at Cleveland. And that's your 425 game where in years past, your 425 is New York at Dallas, Denver at New England. Now Miami at San Francisco is a 405 game. So that wouldn't get any play throughout the country. But if I would have told you which one of those games would have the top billing when it comes to being aired across the nation, you would have laughed at Indianapolis and Cleveland. But as it is right now, that's a game where you'd have to circle and say, not only for the AFC and possibly if these teams get deep into the regular season and look at possible postseason tiebreakers, but when you have all these other games, whether it's Carolina-Atlanta, whether it's Philadelphia at Pittsburgh, and I understand Philadelphia has a little gas in the tank, so who knows? Arizona at the Jets, the Rams at Washington, Cincinnati at Baltimore, Jacksonville at Houston, the aforementioned Miami at San Francisco. Uh, These games are terrible. The Sunday night game is Minnesota at Seattle. The Monday night game is the Chargers at New Orleans. Now Detroit and Green Bay have the buys officially for this first go around, but these NFL games this week are just a snooze fest. So you look at these last two weeks. Oh my goodness. Now we understand it's the NFL and we're going to get into it and we love it, etc. Yeah, jump up and down. But oh my goodness, these games are just an abomination. And one other thing before I move on. No offense to the man, the player, etc. But how in the hell did Marlon Humphrey get a $98.5 million contract from the Baltimore Ravens is beyond me. Now I'm not watching every Raven game. I do follow them closely considering my allegiance and my dedication to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And we get the pedigree, his dad playing at Alabama, first round pick, 16th overall, corner, etc. He was an all-pro last year, I give it up. But can I see two or three more all-pros before I give him $98.5 million? That's just an atrocity. What are the Ravens thinking? And he could be the man off the field, PR, wet dream, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. To get that money, and he's been winning the league, what, four years? Or this is his fourth year? Was he drafted? I think 2017. I have to go back and think. Uh, Yeah, 2016, 2017. And for him to get that money right now, you would think he's Deion Sanders. And I've watched games against the Steelers 
last year, notwithstanding because of the quarterback scenario, and people could say, oh, I was a young player, Jay Reels, don't get on his back, come on, he's going to make mistakes, whatever, but I haven't seen this man shut down a wide receiver or shut down half the field the way some of the former All-Pros and Hall of Famers did in the past. Am I missing something here? So, yeah, I just found that to be astounding and alarming because if the Ravens are playing him that much, what in the hell are going to pay Lamar Jackson? Now, we understand quarterback's a much different position. He's going to get paid the most out of everybody on the team, but I digress. I, I don't know what else to say about that. Right, who's going to get 50, 60 million? All right, great, 98? Now, I don't know what the guaranteed number is. doesn't matter, but who cares? All right, let me move on. All right, before I get to the NBA, I want to turn my attention to baseball because today starts the division series in the American League, and then tomorrow we'll have the National League ushered in where we'll have four games over the next few days, which is great. Because as we know it, if all these series go five games, it's going to be consecutive. No days off. These teams are now in the bubble. In the American League, you have the Yankees playing Tampa in San Diego. The Houston Astros playing the Oakland Athletics in Los Angeles. In Houston, I believe it's Miami and Atlanta. And then in Arlington, we have the Dodgers and Padres. So before we get to those series, I want to do a little recap winners and losers of last week. So to kick us off here, the winners of last week in the wildcard round, first off was the Oakland A's. We know that their track record has been an atrocity. They cannot win elimination games. They can't even win closeout games. They've been up 2-0 in a million series, whether it's against the Yankees, whether it's against the Red Sox, and they haven't been able to seal the deal. They've been losing these one game wild card winner take alls as they did the last two years where they're at home against Tampa and the year before that in Yankee Stadium. And for them to be down 0-1 in the series to the White Sox and looking like it was going to be another lost postseason for the Oakland A's, they bounced back nicely and winning those back two games. So good for them. But now they got to continue. Just because they have a postseason series under their belt doesn't mean that they could put their feet up and break out the green and gold confetti to celebrate because there's a lot of work to be done. And they're going up against their arch rivals there in the Astros, and we'll get to them in a little bit. My other winner is the Atlanta Braves, which for them, in all their postseason glory of the days of Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, Chipper Jones, Tom Glavin, they won their first postseason series since 2001 in sweeping the Reds out of the postseason to the tune of them not even scoring one run in 22 innings. Which, I mean, could you think about that? They played a 13-inning game one, the Reds, and then obviously a 9-inning the day after, and they didn't score one run. And mind you, in the first game, they had 11 hits, I believe, maybe even more, maybe 13 hits in that game in the 13-inning loss and not one run. And they had a million opportunities. But it's about the Braves right now. They're able to win a postseason series. They move on, and the Braves, we know about their postseason history, a la the previous generations of the aforementioned players. But now let's see what the Braves can do as they move on to play against the Miami Marlins. And my other winner of the week, I'll say it, the Houston Astros. I understand it was against the Minnesota Twins, and they've lost 18 straight postseason games where you can't even comprehend that. I mean, that is just 18 straight postseason games? And it's baseball. Uh, How can you not win one of your last 18 postseason games? My condolences to my guy out in Minnesota, Headstyle, But if you're the Twins front office 
and the hierarchy there, the owner, etc., you got to be beyond sick to your stomach knowing that you haven't won a postseason series in 16 years. And it's not as if they haven't been in the postseason this century. I mean, they have plenty of chances to win a game, and granted, most of it was against the Yankees, but now I'm making this more about the Twins just like I did about the Reds. So kudos to the Astros. They don't have their best pitcher in Justin Verlander. They were under 500 this year, as we know, 29-31. I know a lot of people thought that they probably didn't deserve to be there considering they're under 500, but with the way the season broke and the eight postseason teams per league, they're here right now. And I'm going to get to them a little bit later on as far as them winning this series and what it means to the Astros moving forward. And my losers of the week, I'm not even going to say, yeah, it's easy to say the Twins, etc. How about the AL and NL Central? They represented almost half of the playoff teams this postseason. Seven. And not one advanced to the division series. If that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what does. And... That's just a disgrace. I mean, you can't cut it any other way. So when you look at even the Cubs, for that matter, only scoring one run in two games against the Marlins. And look at the Marlins. Uh, They also belong in the winner category too, but I had to give kudos more so to Oakland and Atlanta before the Marlins. But the Marlins, they've been in in three postseasons in their history. And to this day, they have still not lost a postseason series. I mean, think about that. This is the Marlins. 7-0. We'll see what they do against Atlanta this coming week, but as of right now, they are undefeated in the postseason. But the Cubs, what could you say about them? And the one thing I think about, even though you have Joe Madden long gone and you have David Ross as the manager, this Cub run with all their players that they've had on the team throughout these past five, six years, whether your name is Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber, and they added Jason Hayward and guys like that, but John Lester. But for them to bow out the way they have here in this postseason and looking at this run, getting the one World Series, and it was enormous. We understand that, 108 years. But you would think with this talent, they should have gone back to another World Series here. And we get it that they had to face the Dodgers a couple times and they lost to them even though they beat the Dodgers in 2016 to go to the World Series. But it's a shame to know that this team that had all this young talent and even traded away talent that's even better than what's been on the field when you look at Gleyber Torres and Eloy Jimenez, both now a Yankee and Chicago White Sox, that they still haven't been able to get back to a World Series with this talent that's been grouped together. I'll say it, it's shocking. Because whenever you have a team that's young, that's on the come up, that wins a World Series a year after they make it to the postseason when they got swept by the Mets in the NLCS and then they make it to a World Series, you would think that this team would have gone back to at least another one between 2016 and now. And they haven't come anywhere close to it. So you wonder what the Cubs are going to do to retool this offseason to try to get back because guys are going to be up for contracts now, whether it's Chris Bryant, even Javi Baez, Schwarber, I don't believe they're giving a big deal to... So those are going to be the focal points of Theo Epstein and company to try to get this team either to stay together, to make another run at this thing for the next two, three, four years, or is it time to have a little parting of the ways considering they're not going to fire the manager after his first year and maybe not think to resign some of their top players, just something to keep an eye on 
with the Cubs, and especially with this run here, culminated by that World Series in 2016, and they finally got the piano off their back, but definitely should have been a lot more winning, or at least another attempt to get another World Series, and obviously that has not been the case for the Chicago Cubs. All right, so now let's get into previewing these upcoming series, and we'll start off with Houston at Oakland, which will be 4 p.m. today. So who knows, by the time you download this, and if you're fortunate enough to listen to this on the same day while the game is going to be played, who knows, it may be in progress by the time you're listening to this. So Houston and Oakland, the one thing these four series have in common is that there's bad blood between all these teams. And with Houston and Oakland, you had that brawl earlier this year where Ramon Laureano actually went and charged toward the Astro dugout. I forgot who the coach was, the first base coach of the, well, the bench coach of the Astros. He got suspended 20 games. So you're going to hear a lot about that this coming week. Now, mind you, the games, as we all know, they're going to be in the bubble, so it's not going to be played in Oakland or have any fans for that matter. Not to say that's going to have any effect. I'm sure that's going to be a storyline. Chances are the players and the manager will defuse that, but something to be seen here where both of these teams, there's no love lost. You also have to remember that Mike Fires, who's on the Oakland A's pitching staff, he was the one, the whistleblower that called out the Houston Astros. And mind you, he was on that team, if you recall, back in 2017, calling them out with the sign stealing. And I had a whole scandal that rocked baseball this past offseason. So you also have that to add into the mix. As far as these games are concerned, Oakland, they have a lot of young pitching. To me, it's going to be all based on them. How far can they go? They can't tax these bullpens as you saw there in game three against the White Sox. So many pitchers. I know the manager of the White Sox, Rich Renteria, went through his whole bullpen, it seemed. Went nine pitchers throughout the course of the game. And you also saw that too the other day. I forgot what series that was. Oh, it was San Diego and St. Louis, that final game where they just emptied out the whole bullpen. So now you have a situation where you have these young pitchers, Sean Maniah, who we know is pretty much the ace of that staff as far as his tenure is concerned. But when you're looking at Jesus Luzardo, I don't know if you're going to see fires here in this series. You would think you would considering that it's five straight games. There's no day off. So who's going to be your fourth starter and quite possibly your fifth starter at some point? Or is he going to come in relief? To me, that remains to be seen. I think the, the matchup between the Astro lineup and the pitching from the A's is going to be the story of the series. Now, we understand it could be the other way around, but the A's do not have the lineup that the Astros do because they still have George Springer. They still have Michael Brantley. They still have Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman. The lineup is still really good. That's going to be, to me, the key to the series, what they do to slow those bats down. I hate to say this, I'm going to pick the Astros in five. I don't know if Oakland was jumping up and down knowing that they finally got that postseason series victory under their belt. That's not to say they're going to take the foot off the gas. But the Astros, they know how to win. Cheating or not cheating. And we saw that in the previous round. I get it's the Twins, I understand. But these players have been together. There's going to be no sign stealing or trash can banging here. So... I'm just going to go based on their current record, their recent stretch. I'm going to say the Astros in five. As far as the Yankees in Tampa, 
Their history goes back many years, but all you have to do is look at the last series that they played against one another when Aroldis Chapman threw at the head of Mike Brousseau late in that middle game in September where the Yankees won. Now, mind you, the Yankees were 2-8 and eight against the Rays this year. And the Rays have shown that they, not only have they flexed their muscles in beating the Yankees and even from come from behind fashion in some of these games, but they'll look at them square in the eye and they're not afraid of them. Which is good because most teams in October, especially that may not have a lot of experience, they're usually shaking in their boots when it comes up against the pinstripes and the tradition of the New York Yankees. But my thing here with this series, we know the Yankees, it seems like the sleeping giant has been awoken in the previous series with all the hits and the home runs that you've seen against Cleveland. And for the Rays to match that, they're not going to be able to do so. If they come out of the gate flying here to the tune of, let's say, 4 nothing after the first inning, or even if you look at the game against Cleveland where Shane Bieber got rocked, and I don't want to hear about him anymore as far as being a top pitcher is concerned. Although he's going to win the Cy Young in the American League, I get it, but his performance was just putrid. But if Blake Snell goes out there tonight and he gives up a two-run bomb to Judge or a three-run bomb to Giancarlo Stanton, you wonder what the psyche of the Rays are going to be. Are they going to peck away? Are they going to try to play a little tight? Are they going to try to swing for the fences? Who knows? So to me, that's going to be one thing if they happen to trail early in some of these games, how they're going to perform here, to me, is one thing that I'm going to be concerned about if you're a Ray fan. And then the other thing is, too, if you're a Yankee fan, how many stress-free innings Garrett Cole's going to pitch? Because chances are, if this goes five games, he's going back on the mound in game five on three days rest. And if he throws 102 stress-free pitches, meaning that if the Yankees are up, let's say, 5 nothing in the third inning, and he just cruises along to where he pitches seven innings and he throws 102 pitches, one run, four hit ball, nine strikeouts, no walks. Will he be ready to come back for game five? Or does he throw six innings, 116 pitches, does give up two runs, four hits, 10 strikeouts, but he leaves the game either tied at 2-2 or up 2-1 or down 3-2? To me, that's going to be the key. Because if there is a game five, Garrett Cole's going to be out there. He's only getting paid... $324 $324 million throughout the course of his contract in order for him to win games like that. So with that being said, I'm picking the Yankees in five. You know I'm rooting for the race hard, but all that regular season record of 8-2 and two against the Yankees, that's out the window now. Whole new ball game here. Miami and Atlanta, the bad blood between those teams starts and ends with Jose Urania because... He had broken his forearm during the final regular season game against the Yankees. And you're not going to see him here in this postseason. If you recall, he has hit Ronald Acuna Jr. on a couple of occasions. One where it actually almost sparked a bench-clearing brawl. And Urania, who's been tagged by Acuna Jr. throughout the last couple of years as far as long balls are concerned. You're not going to be able to see that here in this round. But the... Cloud does cast over these two teams as them not liking one another. The young pitching for the Marlins is going to be enormous for them to come through here. And they need to give them length. So if you're Sandy Alcantara, if you're Sixto Sanchez, 
you can't go five innings and give it up to the bullpen. You got to try to get some length here. Minimum six, try to go seven. But sadly, in this day and age of baseball, even if you give your manager, in this case, Don Manningly, six innings, and he's thrown 89 pitches, he's going to be out of the game. And the Marlin bullpen that showed up pretty well here in the first round against the Cubs, you got to wonder, against the Braves, a team that has seen this Marlin bullpen time after time this year and over the course of the last few years, is that going to be more of an advantage to the Braves hitters or will the Marlins have enough confidence in these guys to plow through and get through these games on the winning side with the middle and back end of their bullpen? But the Braves, who finally got that postseason win under their belt and what they're going to be able to do here, I see them winning in four games. I see the Marlins winning a game. At some point, if they're going to win a game, they got to steal one of these first two. And they have a decent pitching matchup. We know the Brave pitching staff is... Max Fried is their ace right now. We know no Mike Soroka. No Mike Fultonavich. So they're pretty much going to piecemeal their starting staff together. And try to win a series against a Marlins team that is playing with house money. Let's call it as we see it. I mean, they're a team that nobody's expected to not even be here at this position. But even win around to play in a division series. And then lastly, the Padres and Dodgers. The bad blood starts with Trent Grisham, who hit a home run off of Clayton Kershaw, Cadillacked it around the bases, jawed at the Dodger dugout, caused a little dust up. You wonder what kind of impact that's going to have with the two teams. And we know that San Diego is the little brother to LA geographically, kind of like a New York and Philadelphia situation. So you wonder if there's going to be any residual effect from what happened then. Both of these teams playing at a high level. The Padres coming back from an 0-1 hole against St. Louis to win that series. Fernando Tatis Jr. being the, I'm not going to say he's the best player in all of baseball, but he's certainly the most exciting player right now in the game. So you're going to have both of those teams go at it. And I'm going to be rooting hard for the Padres. But with their pitching woes in San Diego, not having Mike Clevenger, not having the Nelson Lamette, I would think the Dodgers win him four. And Clayton Kershaw, I understand no pressure, up 1-0, eight innings, 13 strikeouts against the Brewers. Doesn't make up for all of his past postseason peccadillos, but it's certainly a good start to his postseason. And let's see how he does moving forward as I'm sure he'll pitch game two. Walker Bueller, Can he stop getting blisters on his fingers? And I don't even know if he's going to be starting tomorrow night. You would think he would, considering he was the game one starter there last week. But that's what I have here for this divisional series round. And looking forward to seeing how this all shakes down starting today in the American League with this ALDS. Now, as far as the length of these games, I have a very simple and surefire solution to that. And as I mentioned at the top in my What's the Deal segment, I know that as frustrating as it is to watch a four-hour and 48-minute baseball game a la Game 2 of the Yankees and Cleveland Indians or the White Sox and Oakland A's at Game 3 where it was starting, I believe, top of the sixth and the game was three hours in thanks to all the pitching changes that were made in the game. But the one simple solution to all that 
And mind you people, if you listened to me before or if you're listening for the first time, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to all the sports. And we could tweak things here and there, but anything radical, I'm not for. But in this case, I think it would not only help the sport, I actually think it would attract more fans. And I understand it may be unpopular to some people, especially the traditionalists like myself. But if they were to shorten these games to seven innings, it would make the sport a lot more appealing to not only the casual sports fan, but even the young baseball fan who is either just getting into baseball or is into baseball knowing that by possibly two and a half to three hours, these games will be done and no more than that. And I know it sounds crazy for me to say this because we're just so entrenched with nine innings. It's been part of the sport forever. Going back to the 19th century. It is 2020. And with baseball trying to compete with the NBA, not necessarily the NHL, but with the NBA being the second most popular sport in this country and baseball slowly but surely falling by the wayside and with the labor negotiation at the end of next year, who knows what that's going to do to either destroy the sport or even possibly keep the sport afloat. We'll have to wait until then to dissect all of that. But I think to have a seven-inning game starting maybe not next year, but with the new CBA for 2022 and beyond, I think will be helpful. And it'll be helpful for these few reasons. A lot of it from the pitching perspective. One, you can have starters go seven innings to complete games now. As Ron Darling, the one-time New York Met and now the announcer for the Mets on SNY, where he said several years ago, seven innings is the new nine innings. So we can't call it a complete game by any stretch. But when a starter goes seven innings, it almost feels like a complete game because you do not see the complete game that we saw of yesteryear. So if you have a seven-inning game, chances are you could stretch your starters out going into six and maybe seven. And there you go. You don't have to worry about a middle reliever. You don't have to worry about going to your bullpen, etc. Or if you want, if you have that dominant closer, you could go six innings with your starter and then one inning to your closer and good night the lights. That's number one. Number two, you won't have all these mound visits and pitching changes that you've seen, which just staggers the game and becomes interminable. And especially in the postseason where the managers are just overthinking every scenario possible. In and out. Don't have to worry about it. If a pitcher has to go five innings to get his win, we're not going to alter that. So it's not going to be four innings because we're shortening the game when it comes from nine to seven. No, five innings to get your win. You have to at least pitch that. And seven innings, your complete game. Cut out the middle relievers. And I would be sure that the owners would like that, not the players association, because that means you're going to cut jobs for the middle reliever or the long reliever or the mop-up reliever, understood. But it's about being efficient. It's about appealing to the fans and to future fans. We understand the game has been played over 150 years a particular way. But in this day and age, it's not going to cut it anymore. As bad as it is, kids can't watch these games if you're a Yankee fan. And we understand the way the world is right now with COVID. Who knows if these kids are going to school? But there is... I'm sure a curfew for bedtime. So the 11-year-old can't stay up till 1 in the morning to watch the final out of a Yankee-Cleveland Indian game because it's 1 in the morning on a Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it was. So if you have a 7-inning game, 
And if it starts at 7 or even 8 o'clock, you can only hope by maybe 10.30, maybe a little bit, something to 11, the game will be over and the kid will go to bed at a decent time. So that's the one thing I like about it if they were to cut it back two innings. So it would wipe out your middle relief. It would also cut down on all these pitching changes that we see time and time again. The starters could get their complete games back. And I understand that people are going to look at it, well, these are going to be two different games if this were to happen because the complete game of yesteryear isn't going to be equivalent to the complete game if they were to pass this whenever. 2021, 2022 moving forward. All right, we can understand that, but there's the demarcation. What's the problem? I don't have a problem with that. If there were seven inning games, now I'd probably miss those final two innings. I understand because it's been entrenched and baseball is my first love, etc. But if it's going to benefit the sport, why not? Now, I don't want the man on second base at the 10th inning. No, 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 we don't need that. I see why they did that here in the regular season due to COVID. I get that. And for them to have the double headers where it's seven innings each game, and it was great. I loved it. Took a little bit of getting used to, but so what? It's fine with me. So why not have seven inning games moving forward if you want to shorten these games? I'm all for that. Now, sadly, as 2020 continues just to wreak havoc on the sports world and everybody else for that matter, but considering this is sports and this is what I talk about, when you hear the name Bob Gibson, the first thing you think of is 1968. You think of that year where he was, I believe, 22-9, and an ERA of 1.12, striking out 17 Detroit Tigers in the World Series, which is still, to this day, a World Series record. A guy who was not only just dominant as a postseason pitcher, but was a guy who was never afraid to take back the inside part of the plate. Not that he wanted to knock a guy's head off or throw at a batter's head, But he was a guy that truly said, that's my plate. I dictate to you what you're going to swing at me. I'm not going to submit to you. And he was a guy that, to his last breath, said that if that was me pitching today, there's no way they would have the inside part of the plate. And that's what you love. You love that mentality. You love that, just that competitiveness from a guy that, look at the back of his baseball card, a champion in 1964, a champion in 1967, one of the great all-time seasons by any pitcher in the history of the sport, especially in the modern ball era with those numbers. And how he lost nine games with an ERA of 1.12, you can't even wrap your head around that. But on Friday, he passes away at the age of 84 due to pancreatic cancer. And remember, just a month prior, we ended up losing Lou Brock. Another all-time Cardinals. Yeah, two all-time greats on, from that franchise. Just leave us and just very sad. What can I, There's nothing else to say when it comes to the greats of the game. You know, you had Tom Seaver, you had Lou Brock. Just in baseball within the last five weeks. So thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Gibson family. And that was a guy that we'll never see the likes of ever again. And he was a little bit before my time. I didn't watch him pitch, but I've seen all the highlights. I've read the stories. I've checked the stats. I know Bob Gibson. He was a tough SOB out there on the mound. But he earned every inch of that reputation. And you had Francisco Cervelli retiring. 
was a champion with the Yankees in 2009, then played after that mostly with the Pirates, did play in Atlanta and Miami. So he calls it a career. The catcher who was a feisty guy, known to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, kind of an underdog type of player, not a guy that was going to be a big part of your lineup, was a light-hitting catcher, but certainly had a big heart. He goes out today as uh, he retires from Major League Baseball. All right, now let's transition over to the NBA, as I'm sure the basketball fans are probably wondering, Jay Reels, uh, are we going to get to what's happening with the finals and stuff that's happening off the court, which I'll get into in particular with Doc Rivers and also Kyrie Irving back at it again with his comments. But the Lakers and Heat last night, I'll start there only because if the Heat were to lose that game, the viewership for game four probably would have been six people in Miami and 100,000 people in LA. I don't know if you saw this, but game one had the lowest NBA final rating for game one ever. And that is not saying a lot. That says it all. I believe the last time they had low ratings like that It may have been San Antonio and Miami 2014. I'd have to go back and look at that. I know it was recent. But for them to have that type of viewership, and I understand it's a combination of a bunch of things. I'm sure it's the social message that the NBA continues to push across, which is fine with me. You know, it doesn't bother me, but it's going to bother a lot of other people. Whether it's people are not equipped to watch an NBA final in late September Whereas we all know it's early June. People are more wrapped up into the football. Maybe to a certain extent the baseball. But not so much because the baseball ratings have been atrocious. But I would think a combination of those two things. And then watching the game in the bubble. It looks like they're playing in a high school gym. No fans. Not a crowd. Everybody's pretty much tuned out of the NBA. That's to me the reason why the ratings have been just awful. But with yesterday and the triple-double backed by Jimmy Butler... One of three 40-point triple-doubles in the history of the NBA Finals. They get a little closer to becoming even, but I'd be shocked if the Lakers show up flat as a pancake tomorrow night for Game 4. When you look at what they did in the first two games, I'm sure Miami's kicking themselves. They had that big lead early on. It was only the first quarter, and we understand 13-point leads aren't 30-point leads when it comes to the NBA, but when you get off to a good start like that, you would only hope for the game to be competitive and maybe go down to the wire. That was not the case. Anthony Davis in his first ever NBA final puts up 34-9. In the game, you had Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic leave with injuries and they still haven't come back. Now, Adebayo at least worked out prior to yesterday's game. He has the bad shoulder. His status for game four right now is uncertain where Goran Dragic, who is their leading scorer throughout the postseason... He has plantar fasciitis in the foot and we all know an injury like that is one that's tough to come back from and considering he is the point guard he is the orchestrator of that offense and for him to be pretty much on one leg or on one foot is going to be impossible for him to come back in the series. Game two was pretty much the same deal with the Lakers. LeBron was doing LeBron things. Anthony Davis with another huge game and then you think to yourself What are the Heat going to do to try to come back in the series? And it took the heroics of Jimmy Butler for them to make it two games to one at this point. And I picked the Lakers in five, and I think that's going to be the case. I know LeBron did not have a good fourth quarter, and Anthony Davis was invisible. He had 15 points. It's almost as if he had 30 points in the first couple of games, 
And here he is in a game three and he was nowhere to be found. So you know that the Lakers are going to come back fast and furious tomorrow night and try to get themselves up three games to one for them to close it out on Friday. Because the rest of the NBA final schedule is Friday game five, then Sunday game six, and then Tuesday will be game seven if it goes that far. So that's what you got with the NBA Finals. Other than that, there really isn't anything to go crazy about. Pretty much what I explained, whether it was the game one, the way it went, game two, and then yesterday, uh, that's it. Now, I'm not going to gripe about LeBron walking off the court there. Everybody's making a big deal. I know Mark Jackson came out and said his displeasure about it. The 24-second clock was, I believe, 0.7 seconds less than the game clock. So for them to walk off the way they did, I didn't have a problem with that. It's not as if LeBron pulled an Isaiah Thomas a la 1991 game four Eastern Conference final against the Bulls walking off with 9.7 seconds or whatever it was on the clock. Now that was, and we understand there was a history between those two teams, but it's not as if he walked off the court with nine seconds to go and said goodbye. I'll see you uh, Tuesday night. So for LeBron to get pounded on that, uh, to me, that's just stupid. But as far as other Things happening in the NBA. You had a couple of hirings and one firing. I'll get to the hiring with Billy Donovan. Now, there were reports out of OKC that with the Thunder looking to make an overhaul with all the draft picks that they were able to get with the trade from Paul George and even Chris Paul when he was traded for Russell Westbrook, it seemed as if the Thunder looked like they were going to go in that direction where they're going to rebuild who knows what they're going to do with Chris Paul here in this offseason if they're going to trade him to try to get more of a surplus considering he had a very good postseason and a very good year for that matter. But Donovan going to the Bulls and I get that he wanted to probably get another job and I'm sure he looked at the potential of some of the players on the roster but uh, it's not as if the Bulls are going to make a run for the Eastern Conference Finals next year when your roster is Zach Levine, Laurie Markkinen, Otto Porter and the rest of the casting characters on that team. You know, Scottie Pippen's not walking through that door. We know for sure uh, Michael Jordan is not walking through that door. Hey, give it up for Billy Donovan. He got another coaching gig. I think he's a very good coach. Deserving. If he felt that he didn't want to be part of a 17-win team in Oklahoma over the course of the next couple of years, I get it. But how much more of an improvement has he gone from Oklahoma to Chicago with the roster that he's going to inherit? Uh, You could certainly question that. Now, to get to Doc Rivers... That was a surprise because they waited a couple of weeks until after their season was over to let go of their one-time coach who was there for seven years. And I thought it was a little bit premature. Is it understandable? I totally get it because that team should not have lost a 3-1 series lead to the Denver Nuggets and that's not knocking Denver by any stretch. But year one of the Kawhi-Paul George experiment we understand it bombed. But Rivers probably should have gotten another crack at it next year to see where it would have gone, knowing that these players are probably not going to be here longer than the following year. We understand that they had those opt-outs after two years, I believe, maybe Paul George after three. But this is a very short window for this Clipper team. And if you're Steve Ballmer, I get it. You saw him blow a 3-1 lead to the Rockets in 2015. That was his first year as owner of the team. And then now with Kawhi Leonard and having championship aspirations for them to 
just implode the way they did against Denver. Maybe it was time for a change. But who is it going to replace Doc Rivers with is beyond me. We know Greg Popovich isn't going there. Barring some sort of miracle. Who knows if they're going to keep it in-house with either Tyron Lue or Sam Cassell. And Doc Rivers, I like him as a coach. He may be a little overrated, even with the championship that he got with the Celtics back in 2008. But considering he's had just a bunch of postseason flops, especially now, this late in his postseason career, in his basketball coaching career, it is a little bit alarming. But within days, he gets hired by the Philadelphia 76ers, in which I think is a very good hire. But here is the big question. What are you going to do with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid? Has the front office, the ownership, Michael Rubin and company, have they sat down to talk to Doc Rivers to say, this is what our roster is. Can you work with these guys? Or are they looking to have a parting of the ways with either their talented but mercurial center or their mega talented but oft injured point guard? I would think they would do their best to try to work it out. I understand it doesn't do wonders to have both of them on the same team considering one guy's 6'10 and the other guy's 7'2. As we've seen in the Brett Brown era, they weren't able to stretch the floor. Obviously, they didn't have the pivotal and key shooters that they need on that team in order to stretch the floor. As we know, the way the game is played today. Would I trade one of those two guys? Of course, the big question is depends on what I'm getting back. I think Embiid has all the talent in the world to be not only just an all-NBA player, but a perennial MVP, but we know it's between his ears is what's stopping him, and also in his chest, if you ask me. Simmons is a guy that, can you build a team around? He's a facilitator, he is a lockdown defensive player, but the guy does not score. And we get that players in the past, whether you're Jason Kidd or Magic Johnson, could dominate a game without scoring. But the thing is, is that he's another one that floats in and out of these games. Yeah, he may have those games where he's 28, 16, and 13. But then he has those games where he's 14, 8, and 5. Uh, what's up with that? Do they need to make a change there? I think with a new coach, they're going to keep all the pieces in place and see how it all unfolds. And if for whatever the reason it doesn't work out next year, they're not going to fire Doc Rivers. That's when they'll make a trade. That's just my prediction. Which one do they trade? Unbeknownst at this time, but I would think that they're going to keep this experiment for one more year and see how it works under a new coach. I don't know what the hell's going on in Brooklyn. We know Steve Nash is the coach of that team, and we know that he's getting his first crack at being the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, who now are on the clock as far as trying to secure or procure whatever talent they need to build to get themselves to the NBA mountaintop, as I like to say. You're going to have Kevin Durant in the mix, Kyrie Irving, fully healthy, you would think. And we know about their supporting cast, whether it's Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, and they they have a very deep roster. Who knows if they're going to resign Joe Harris. But when you hear comments from both Kyrie and Kevin Durant, but most so Kyrie. When he comes out and says that this is going to be a collaborative effort when it comes to this team, so meaning that sometimes it'll be KD to coach the team or to coach the guys, just like I may be 
out there to coach the guys as well. And the first thing I thought of was, not only are you kidding, but did Steve Nash sign up for this? What about the owner, Joseph Sy, who's a newly minted owner within the past year, year and a half? I'm sure he didn't endorse this. There's a reason why you have a coach. I don't care if he's wet behind the ears and never coached a professional game in his life or is a basketball lifer. Every team and every sport has a coach or a manager in baseball that the players have to listen to. So for Kyrie and even Kevin Durant, because he did say he also mentioned collaborative effort too, but Kyrie's words stung a little bit more because he shared the responsibility with his teammates. Some days will be me, some days will be him, some days will be the other guy. That's how it's going to work. Since when in the history of sports has that ever worked? Unless you're a player manager. And if that was the case, Joseph Sides should have given the keys to the car to both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving as co-coaches to be on this team. Because what in the hell is Steve Nash there for? What, just to share a little bit of his experience about what it's like to win in the postseason? As we all know, Steve Nash has never been to an NBA final. And it's not the knock Steve Nash. He was a great point guard. Back-to-back MVP, Hall of Famer, etc. I get it. But for Kyrie to make those comments, I'm sure the oatmeal did not go down the morning after when Steve Nash read that. Or if you're the owner, Joseph Side, the pumpkin spice latte did not go down well after reading that. Unless you knew that this was going to be the case. And if that's the case, then shame on you. But it seems as if Kyrie can't get out of his own way with some of the things that he says. And I won't even get into what he said last week about the ball and the slight against LeBron James as far as working with Kevin Durant and saying, hey, I got a guy that's equivalent to me when it comes to making game-winning or big shots when it comes to the end of the game. LeBron didn't even pay that any mind and good for him. But to me, it's not about that. But it's about this, I don't get it. And we understand that there are pseudo-coaches. We know Frank Vogel's the coach of the Lakers, but at the end of the day, is LeBron part coach, quote-unquote? To a certain extent, he is. Now, let's face it, come on. But that doesn't mean in all the other sports or all the other NBA teams that have stars, you know, it's not as if James Harden is part coach, although he may be to a certain extent, I don't know, but at the end of the day, he's not the one out there killing Mike D'Antoni. He actually wanted him to stay there. So it's just preposterous beyond belief to think that Kyrie would even suggest or even bring up that there's going to be a collaborative effort between myself KD, DeAndre Jordan, whoever may be on the team when it comes to navigating this Brooklyn Net team to heights that they've never seen in winning an NBA championship. I would love to know what Steve Nash has to say about that. And I'm sure he's going to be the good sport and say, well, yes, it's going to be collaborative. I pick from them. They pick from me. We'll put it together and see how it works. If that's going to be the case, his coaching tenure may not go as far as the day is long. I'll just leave it at that. All right, quickly with the NHL, I just want to say this with Tampa winning the cup last week and congratulations to them. They earned it, which leads to another question as far as these championships having any type of validity or not having an asterisk next to it. Now we get that the circumstances are unforeseen. Who knew that COVID was going to come and rock everybody's world, including the sports world, to where we had to stop and restart or start all over or whatever it is. Whether you're thinking that Tampa deserved it or not, 
if they would have had to play road games, if they would have had to play in hostile environments, would this have been the same? We're never going to know that. But when you're in a bubble for as long as you've been, and granted, for the most part, it was in Toronto before moving to Edmonton for the conference final, they still earned it. That is a tough trophy to win. It is as grueling and as tough as any other sports. And maybe arguably the toughest. So how I look at it, whether it's the Lakers or Heat, whether it's in baseball, hey, if the Marlins win the World Series this year, yeah, we understand an asterisk and so on and so forth, but they would have won four rounds to win it. And if they do that, then guess what? They deserve it. We know 60 games, if it was 162, they wouldn't have made the postseason. We get that if they didn't have the eight teams in the postseason, they wouldn't have made it. Oh, we understand. But this is what 2020 has presented to us. And what can we say? What can we do? Yes, could we argue the fact that the Marlins win a World Series? Fine. We have to live with that for the rest of the of our lifetime because it's in the history books, but so what? I'm sure the Yankee fans not going to throw it back despite them expecting to go to a World Series whether it's 60 games or 162, but they're not going to throw this back if they happen to win and nor would I expect them or their fans to do so in the process. But going back to Tampa Bay, they deserved it. I thought that they were worthy of winning the cup. They showed they were the best team. They went 2 nothing. Braden Point, Blake Coleman were your goal scorers. Victor Hedman, no shock there was your playoff MVP. And when you look at their trajectory, under their coach, John Cooper, 2015 losing a cup final in six games to the Chicago Blackhawks. The following year losing a seven-game series to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Not even making the postseason in 2017, only to follow that up by losing in seven games to the Capitals, where they had a 3-2 lead going back to Tampa, and then Washington winning those final two games, and then going on to win their elusive cup. Last year, as we all know, getting swept out of the first round after a dominant and record-breaking regular season to the Columbus Blue Jackets. And as I like to say, with teams like that, especially that team last year, they were a bunch of frauds. Well, they proved me the hockey fan, and the sports fan, all wrong this year. They are no longer frauds. So congratulations to them. As far as the upcoming season, Gary Bettman is pretty much going to take the temperature over the course of the next few weeks to see. And they're going to have to come up with a plan soon. With the cup final finishing last Monday, September 28th, if they were to start three months from that date, you're talking about Christmas week which could be tricky to start a season. Now, I don't know if they're going to play the full 82-game slate. Who knows if fans are going to be in attendance. You got to remember, it's going to be cold, especially in a lot of these regions where hockey's being played. You don't have to worry about that. Obviously, in South Florida or maybe in Southern California, to a certain extent, maybe in Texas if you're the Dallas Stars. But uh, we all know, winter sport, a lot of cold weather cities. I don't know if you're going to have fans in these buildings. If you do, they're going to have to be spread out as spread as they possibly can be in these arenas. So between that, when they're going to start this season, you would think it's probably going to be sometime, my guess, early January. Maybe they would start the year if they can with a winter classic. As we all know, that's been a staple now to start off the year, to have a major sporting event on that day. I think it would be great, a la the NFL, when they have the Stanley Cup champion open. And I understand it's Tampa, so it's not like, Tampa is a hockey hotbed and you can't really have an outdoor game in Tampa. 
But maybe you could have Tampa playing the Rangers or playing a Cold City, Northern City, maybe the Boston Bruins playing original 16 Detroit, whatever it may be, only to get the season started and to have the Stanley Cup champion play against an original 16. I think that would be an excellent idea to start off your NHL regular season. And if that means you're going to play 82 games, which your season may end June and then start the postseason then to get end in early September, who knows? Or are they going to cut X amount of games off knowing that they're not going to have fans or revenue, etc. It's a unenviable task, that's for sure, for the commissioner and company. And the NBA is going to have to follow suit as well when their season is over and when they're going to start. So there's going to be some tough sledding for both of those sports once the NBA Finals concludes and when they're going to get their season started. But with the NHL, I'm sure they're working fast and furious behind the scenes to see when they can get their 2020-21 season off the ground. Two quick notes. The Vegas Golden Knights re-signed Robin Leonard, the goaltender who they got in the trade deadline from the Blackhawks. They signed him to a five-year, $25 million deal and good for him with everything that he's been through, especially off the ice. But what does that mean for one Marc-Andre Fleury who's in the last year of a contract that pays him $7 million? Well, you would think he's going to be traded somewhere. And my guess is going to be a team that is looking to either get to a cup final or a team that needs a goaltender that hasn't been in the playoffs in quite some time and is going to push them into the postseason. Now, off the top of my head, I'm not in hockey mode, so I can't even tell you which team that is. So whether you're the New Jersey Devils is the first team that comes to mind. And I'm sure Vegas will probably want to trade him to the Eastern Conference far away from any of the teams that he could face out in the West. So we'll see where Marc-Andre Fleury goes because there's no doubt that they're not going to keep two goaltenders who are both going to be making a combined $12 million a year. So his days in Vegas are certainly numbered. And then you also got to give it up to Henrik Lundqvist, the longtime Ranger goalie, who was bought out of his contract. I believe he had one year left, making a ton of money. Who knows if he's going to resurface somewhere else. You would think maybe he'll retire. But we all know that his number 30 will go up in the rafters. Arguably one of the all-time great Rangers, not even just goaltenders has exceeded anything what Mike Richter had done, short of a Stanley Cup, of course, did make it to a Stanley Cup final in 2014, several conference finals, 400 and some odd wins. Chances are you would think he'll be enshrined in Toronto in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Just a great career. And sadly, it comes to an end here as the Rangers now look to go younger with their current goaltender. And if Lundqvist resurfaces somewhere, you would think it's going to be similar to Marc-Andre Fleury where... He's going to be playing for a contender. Whether he starts or backs up, it remains to be seen. Who knows what his plans are or what they will be, but Henrik Lundqvist now no longer a New York Ranger and we'll see what direction his career goes. All right, quickly with two things before we say goodbye. As far as college football is concerned, you had another brutal loss for Oklahoma State. I know last week they lost to Kansas State and then this week they lose at Iowa State 37-30. So they fall out of the top 25 altogether. That was one of the things we talked about with this crazy college football year on whether or not a team like Oklahoma with one loss and such a condensed schedule, would they make it to the Final Four college football playoff? Well, now you can forget about them as they've now lost twice. And who knows if there are any other losses in their foreseeable future. So we could say goodbye to the Sooners. 
One thing I didn't mention last week, and it's my bad people, because again, not in college football mode, but I did say, as time goes on, I will start to dive into that pool and swim in those college football waters. But I didn't discuss the defending champ LSU's pathetic performance against Mississippi State last week or two weeks ago, where they gave up 632 yards in passing to a one KJ Costello. Now, I don't know if he's going to be a guy that's on the rise if his stock is concerned or if he's even a junior, a senior, who knows, but 632 yards. Now, mind you, they didn't have help from Daryl Stingley's grandkid, who is a corner, which would have been a at least a better help than what they received there last week against Costello and Mississippi State. But LSU, I'm sure they're going to be heard from at some point, although they don't have the talent that they had last year. But as we all know, that Alabama game is going to be the one that everybody's going to hang their hat on when it comes to LSU this year and whomever else they play in the SEC. And I understand we're only three weeks into this and things won't start taking into shape until we get to the end of the month. And that's not to say once the Big Ten and the Pac-12, when they follow up next month, will pretty much shape this college football season. It's certainly going to help. But now as we start to get into it, you would think once we get to the middle and the end of the month, once the Big Ten comes in and then the Pac-12, we could hopefully say at that time, that the college football season will take some sort of shape where people will really get into it, will really follow it. Baseball will be done. The NBA Finals will be done. It will pretty much be NFL and college football. And you know, I don't, who knows about college basketball, which will be at the end of next month, but nobody really cares until March Madness. So we'll certainly get into more of the college football as we get deeper into the month. And then lastly, the French Open, which has been a little topsy-turvy here especially on the women's side. Now, of course, there's no Naomi Osaka who did not participate in the French Open because of the proximity between the U.S. Open and the French. She was also nursing a hamstring injury, so she backed out of the tournament. Serena Williams had to step down due to that Achilles that was bothering her in that semifinal match against Victoria Azarenka in the U.S. Open. So Serena had an exit stage left. In fact, you have a couple of players from yesteryear who were major champions in a one, Sophia Kennan and Petra Kvitova, who's reached her first quarterfinal in eight years, which is good to see. And with Simona Halep ousted over the weekend in straight sets to Iga Swiatek, in straight sets, I might add. And also Kiki Bertrands, who's the number five overall or number five seed in the world who earlier beat Coco Goff in the tournament. So you have a bunch of different names, some new, some old, who will go up against one another to see who's going to reach the final and win the French Open. And on the men's side, you had Alexander Zeverev, who lost the final in the U.S. Open. He actually lost to a 19-year-old, Yannick Sinner, in four sets. But with the men's, other than Daniil Medvedev, who lost early in the week, you still have Rafa, you still have Djokovic, even Dominic Team, who's going to go up against Rafa in the quarterfinal. So one of those two will be gone. But as we all know, Rafa's just been a dominant clay court player throughout his career, winning 12 of these tournaments. So let's see if he could go ahead and try to win a 13th, which will actually equal him for most majors ever won by a men's player. 20 where Roger Federer has that title 
So we'll see if Rafa could attain that all-time achievement and get him up there number one ranked with the great Federer. Now to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Dallas Maverick owner Mark Cuban. By him coming to the aid of former NBA player and one-time Dallas Maverick player Delonte West, who's certainly fallen on hard times. By him coming into the picture, trying to get him cleaned up, rehabilitated after his run with several people on the street, the law, dealing with mental health issues, for him to extend his hand to do what he can to try to help Delonte West. What could you say? In a day and age where a lot of these owners, it's all about them printing and making money, Here's a gesture of humanity by one of the top owners in the league and pretty much one of the top and more visible owners in all of sports. So Mark Cuban, I give it to you, my guy. You're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, and I like him as a player, but I got to give it to him, and that's Houston Astros shortstop Carlos Correa. Why is he making comments after winning the wildcard game against the Twins saying that a lot of people are mad, I know a lot of people don't want to see us here, You know what are they going to say now? Carlos. Why puff your chest out after a wild card round when you still have three rounds to go to win a World Series? And I can see if you won a pennant and you're going back to a World Series and you make a comment like that. All right, hey, kudos to you. Clap, tip the cap, etc. But for you to flex your muscles after a team who has never won a postseason game this century, well, they have in 2004, but you get what I mean, 18 straight losses. And to go crazy to think that, ha-ha, the villain is back. Look at us now. What are you going to say? That's just a bad optic on your part, Carlos. So you get my zero of the week. And that'll do it, people. Episode 158 in the books. As always, I appreciate you guys for taking the opportunity to download and listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. Hopefully you come back for many, many more because I plan on going nowhere. So for those first-timers and even the ones who have been listening to what it is I have to say about sports for the last 158 episodes, if you haven't had a chance to do so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast among the many podcasts that are out there. And in turn, I want to generate interest from those outside who aren't familiar with me or the podcast to bring in that guest. And Lord knows people, I'm working behind the scenes as much as I can to try to get That guest, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the studio host, the writer, blogger, whomever it may be, to share their experience on the diamond, on the ice, in the press box, in the broadcasting booth, to share with you, as I like to do twice a week, I always have my State of the Union on sports today on Monday, and then later in the week on a Thursday, that's when I like to bring the guest into the mix. So please, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review, I'd greatly appreciate that. Also, if you want to follow me on any of my social media accounts to leave a question, comment, criticism, praise, a DM, whatever it may be, you could do so at the following on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels podcast, which is strictly sports on Twitter, J Reels one, just a number on Facebook, the J Reels podcast and the old fashioned way by email to J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Again, send any question. You have a comment, you have some criticism, praise, whatever it is, please send it to me. I'll be able to follow up with you guys. And lastly, if you want to support my work and what I do behind the scenes to produce this podcast, you could please do so on my Patreon page at www.patreon. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast. 
100% of whatever you want to contribute goes to the advertising, to the website, to keep that up throughout the course of the year. Anything that has to do with the production of this podcast, whatever you want to submit, I would truly and greatly appreciate it. Because as I like to say in closing on all of my podcasts, I was born to do this. This is my love. This is my passion. Talking sports, sharing my insight, my opinions, my analysis to entertain and inform you guys on everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.